In this podcast episode, we want to introduce you to our BCEN friend, Jacob Miller. Come along as Michael Dexter and Holly Briggs talk with Jacob about his career in flight nursing to his latest adventures in advanced practice and all things education. Jacob is serving up lots of advice and insight. This episode is called Professionalism Any Way You Slice It. Hello, and welcome to the BCN and Friends podcast, where we hold interesting conversations about learning with a range of thought leaders, BCN certification holders, and industry professionals. But most importantly, to create value and insight for you, our professional nurses across the emergency spectrum. We hope you find our discussions interesting, informative, sometimes funny, sometimes serious, and always valuable. I'm Holly Briggs, a professional development specialist at BCN, and one of your hosts for today. I am joined by my co-host, Michael Dexter, Director of Professional Development at BCEN. Hi, Michael. Hey, Holly. Great to have you with us today. In this episode of BCN and Friends, we have Jacob Miller. Jacob has quite an extensive background in emergency flight and transport nursing, of which Michael is about to spend some time naming all the degrees, certifications, and programs Jacob has accomplished. We know this. Jacob is passionate about learning educating and paying it forward. Michael, could you please introduce us to our BCN and friend, Jacob? Yeah, I would be happy to. Jacob Miller is a nurse practitioner, clinical nurse specialist, and nationally registered paramedic with a background in flight, critical care transport, and emergency nursing, in addition to over 15 years of EMS practice. Jacob received his Master of Science in Acute Care from the University of Maryland, a post-master's certificate in advanced flight nursing from Case Western Reserve University, and his doctorate in nursing practice from the University of Cincinnati. Jacob currently works as a clinical educator and critical care transport clinician in Cincinnati, Ohio. He holds multiple certifications, including the CFRN and the CTRN, and is active in several professional organizations, including serving as an at-large director on the Air and Surface Transport Nurses Association Board of Directors, chair of the Emergency Nurses Association Advanced Practice Advisory Council, and co-chair for the EMS Special Interest Group with the American Academy of Emergency Nurse Practitioners. We're happy to celebrate with you the recent accomplishment of being accepted as a fellow in the Academy of Emergency Nursing. Jacob, welcome to the BCN and Friends podcast. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, you have done a lot, and I know I read off quite a few things. You're very involved, not only um, in the industry of flight, but in uh, multiple um, professional organizations, like we mentioned. But can you tell us kind of the beginning, like what made you decide you wanted to even have a healthcare career and what drove you um, along your, your path of your career so far? So that's one of those interesting things that I actually don't know how it all began. I know from a very young age that I was very interested in the fire and EMS service. Um, I remember, you know, some of my first few toys were, you know, fire trucks and ambulances, and I'd play with them around the house when I was just a little kid. And then, you know, when the fire whistle went off, I would, you know, I was one of those kids that would go down to because we lived right down the uh, right down the road from the local fire station in my hometown. So I would just as like a little kid, I would run out to the end of the driveway, wouldn't go in the street, but go to the end of the hall, on the end of the driveway and watch as the fire trucks went out to whatever emergency they were going to. Um, but I don't know where that actually came from. That is something you know, nobody else in my family was at the time involved in healthcare in any way, shape, or form. Certainly nobody in my family was in the fire or EMS service. You know, I think a lot of the times we hear those patients' stories where, you know, someone has an, uh, an encounter with the healthcare system, and that's what 
drives them to then pursue a career in you know nursing or medicine or you have um, in the fire service you have those stories where you know it's a generational thing my father was a firefighter and his father was a firefighter and so on and so forth but um none of that's really my story so i don't really know how i fit in here i just kind of organically grew into it from a interest very young um in my age and kind of i just stuck with it so my first job ever out of high school so the first job was obviously in a pizza because every teenager has to do like the pizza pizza boy thing for a while right but my first real job uh, after i graduated high school was uh, working as an emergency medical technician with a commercial ambulance service um, and i also volunteered for my hometown ambulance service and from there, it just, you know, one thing led to another and I was interested and went further on and went to started going to nursing school, um, but continued to work part time PRN as an EMT and then as an advanced EMT. And then um, after I graduated with my nursing degree, I realized that I couldn't do now in the field what I could do in the hospital. So I went back and became a paramedic so I could kind of have that same level of care across the board. And um that's that's really where my beginning started from. Can you jump ahead to why did you decide to get your doctorate? So the doctorate was kind of an eating my own words. Um, I never thought that I would get one. And I always kind of said, like, you know, after I got my master's and I did my postmaster's certification in, in flight, I'm like, well, I'm pretty happy with where I am clinically. Um, you know, I'm probably smart enough where I could get a doctorate, uh, but nobody really requires it. So, you know what? If someone else is going to pay me, like if someone else is going to pay for it, then I'll just go ahead and do it. Well, fast forward a little while, I ended up taking, I transferred from um, from Cleveland, from where I was working in Cleveland down to Cincinnati. And lo and behold, my new position came with free tuition at the university. So that was more or less, uh, well, I guess I was saying that I was going to do this, so I may as well go ahead and do it. So it, it really, that that was the big impetus to do it. But certainly, you know, having that doctoral preparation is immensely helpful in things like reading and understanding literature, trying to translate a lot of the evidence that is out there in the world into practice. So, um, you know, as most people are probably aware, there's two doctoral preparations within the field of nursing. So there's the PhD and the DNP. And in my degree, I'm a doctorate of nursing practice of the DNP. So the PhD really is someone who's looking at generating the research and generating that information to put out there into the world. And then the DNP's role in the greater nursing system is to take that evidence that is now out there and translate that into your local practice. So I think that's something that you can certainly do without having a doctoral degree. Uh, nurses have been doing that for, for many, many years. But I think that having that doctorate is helpful in my local practice where I'm taking a lot of that information and trying to translate it into how can we as a transport agency be better at meeting our patients' needs, integrate the best practices, the best technology, the best resources into our own environment to give our clinicians and our teams the best resources they have and the best way to meet those clinical objectives in caring for what are arguably some of the sickest and most delicate patients that are transported in the region. I appreciate you kind of helping to delineate some of that because really, I mean, when we say things like, Hey, Jacob, you're an advanced practicing nurse in flight transport. You know, some people might not really understand what that is. And honestly, I would love to hear you just kind of clarify, like, 
how does that role versus the role of a flight nurse? Like what can you, can you just help to kind of like flesh that out for us a little bit? So that's a very interesting thing. So first and foremost, um, with some restructuring that was recently done at our institution, I'm no longer technically practicing as an advanced practice nurse. Um, so when I, so, so like I said, I'm, I'm the clinical educator for, for air care as I was in, in, introduced. And um, with that, I'm still able to work on the ground as a mobile intensive care nurse. I'm still able to fly as a flight nurse, but I'm no longer in the capacity of a advanced practice provider. Obviously, I have the training, I have the licensure, I have the certification, but I'm not in that job description, in that job role. And that's actually the way that many individuals broadly in the transport system find themselves. I know many individuals that are nurse practitioners, clinical nurse specialists, um, nurse anesthetists, midwives, but when they fly because they enjoy the transport setting or when they do ground critical care transport, they're hired into and used as a role of a registered nurse. And the big thing is, by and large, the scope of practice is very similar between a registered nurse and an advanced practice nurse. I think many people look at nurse practitioners when they look at the um, the scope of practice differences and they see that, you know, they're used to the hospital model where the nurse practitioner is the one who has to put in an art line and put in the central line and do an intubation and all these procedural things. But really, if you look at most state nurse practice acts, a lot of those are actually well within the scope of practice of a registered nurse. It's the institution that determines who may or may not perform them. So that kind of takes that out of it. So the next question is maybe it's a knowledge-based thing. And I think that there might be some value to that, but we also know that many transport and emergency nurses, just kind of looking broadly at the entire spectrum of of the BSEN population, you know, many emergency nurses, many transport nurses, many flight nurses, um, many trauma nurses, you know, knowledge, there is no scope of practice to knowledge. You may learn whatever it is that you want to learn. Um, if you want to, you know, there's there's things like, you know, the YouTube videos and all this other free open access education that allows a nurse to learn whatever they want to learn. You can watch med school lectures if you want to and and train yourself to that level. Does it mean you're a physician? No, but it gives you that knowledge base. So that's kind of out. So what really is the difference between an advanced practice provider and registered nurse? I think a lot of it really comes down to the, the, the scope of practice when it comes to individualizing patient care for a specific person in front of you. And it's more of a legal definition than it is a clinical one. It comes down to, are you able to, um, do you have protocols or standard care guidelines? And if you do, are you able to independently choose them? Because some states, it's actually outside of an RN scope of practice legally to choose a protocol to follow because that's considered quote unquote diagnosis. Um, And then the other side of that is if you have a patient who doesn't perfectly fit the protocol, do you have the ability to independently and in the moment make a decision to work outside of the protocol without calling for medical control orders? And again, most states that I'm aware of, that would then also fall outside of the technical scope of practice for a registered nurse. So really, those are the the two biggest benefits of having an advanced practice provider in transport is you are able to immediately individualize the care for that individual, even if that involves working outside of a standard and defined protocol set. 
So one institution that I worked at as an advanced practice provider, we just didn't have protocols. Um, we were expected to do what every other provider in the hospital would do for any given patient. And we just formulated our own treatment protocols for that individual in the moment. And that was, I mean, obviously we had institutional guidelines that we had to follow. We couldn't just, you know, do whatever we wanted to do. Um, be like, oh, I heard this, I heard this one thing on a podcast once. It sounded fun. Let's go ahead and try it. You can't really do that. You had to follow the institutional guidelines broadly, but but there, we didn't have like protocols that said, like, if you have a patient with acute coronary syndrome, you must do these things. We were able to individualize that. Um, the program that I currently work for, we do have policies and protocols to follow. Um, they're reasonably liberal, but we also then had the ability as advanced practice nurses when I was flying as an APRN. I had the ability to step outside of that on my own license and on my own uh, prescriptive authority if I felt that there was a circumstance in that patient's history or presentation that necessitated moving outside of the protocol. Currently, as, as a flight nurse, kind of falling back into that role, I can still do that, but I have to get the approval of some kind of a medical control authority. So either calling my medical director, calling one of the attending physicians in the emergency department, or if it's a specialty care transport, calling you know one of the fellows or one of the attendings in the receiving facility unit to discuss the patient's case and say, hey, this is what I want to do. This is why I want to do it. Are you okay with that treatment plan? That's probably the biggest difference because then if they say no, now you're in that conflict of, well, I really think that this is something that we need to do. I would really like to do this. I'm not getting the legal order to do it. So now you're in that kind of ethical dilemma of what is the best course of action? Like I know what I would have done if I had my own prescriptive authority to do it, but now I don't have that authority and I don't have the permission or the order, the provider order to do that thing. And that's where it becomes a little bit challenging. Um, I know for me personally, because, you know, I know what I would like to do. I know that I can't do it. And it's a little bit of that kind of that professional conflict. And then, you know, that's where you get into, you know, maybe restate your case to the person on the phone. You know, maybe they didn't understand exactly what you were getting at. Um, and as long as it's safe for the patient to avoid that thing, and maybe it's not ideal, but as long as it's still safe for the patient, you know, transport them to where you're going and then debrief afterwards and say, hey, you know, this is why I thought that was this was a good idea. What were you thinking? You know, have that debrief. So this way you as a professional can grow and and learn from that. And this applies also, you know, certainly to any emergency nurse, any transport nurse, any, you know, trauma nurse, any any nurse really, when you have those in the moment disagreements with, you know, a, a physician, a nurse practitioner, a PA, whoever you're 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 dealing with, um, we know that that happens. And being able to handle that the appropriate way is important for our own professional learning and our own professional growth, whether you're certified or not, whether, you know, whatever the case may be, that's something that I think all of us can take away from this is um, sometimes you're going to have to have that collaborative work with someone who may not agree with exactly what you want to do and making sure that at the end of the day, the patient is at the center of this. We're taking care of the patient, we're doing it safely, and then we're debriefing it afterwards. So we learn how to move forward in the future. Really great points. Thank you for sharing all that, Jacob. And, you know, you talked about knowledge and, and how you can get on YouTube even and watch medical lectures. You know, there's so much that you can do. And one of the questions that we get a lot is, 
people wanting to know how to become a flight nurse. And I like to just maybe differentiate that a little bit because there's the standard definition, what I call it, of you know, three to five years experience, ICU, ER, those those kind of standard things that we've set in place. But the Jacob Miller definition, if somebody comes to you and says, Hey, I want to be a flight nurse. What is your recommendation outside of what we would consider a standard recommendation? What do you think really makes a flight nurse a successful flight nurse? So I think that there's a few different things. Um, Experiential is very important because in the transport environment, um, whether you're a flight nurse, whether you're a ground critical care transport, or whether you're a mixture of both, um, looking very broadly at the, the United States model where the vast majority of programs have a, um, someone who's operating the vehicle, whether that's, you know, an EMT on the ground side, whether it's a pilot on the, the air side. Um, and then you have usually two clinicians and those two clinicians are usually a paramedic and a registered nurse. So broadly across the country, certainly you're going to have the variability between, you know, some places are going to have different crew configurations. I know one of the flight programs near us flies with two nurses. Um, Our program flies with now a nurse and a physician or two nurses, depending on the base that you're at that day. Um, But most just generically, you have a registered nurse and a paramedic. So take that into a little bit of consideration. What I recommend that our nurses have when when they're considering coming and performing in the transport setting is I recommend that they have a decent amount of high level tertiary care intensive care background. The definition actually when you when you talk about kind of that generic definition of three to five years of ER or ICU, that's okay. And as someone who came up through the ranks as an emergency nurse with no, well, no, I can't say no ICU experience. I actually did float to the ICU um, in a community hospital for one night. So I had ICU experience, <laughs> but you know, you know that a community ICU is not the same as a, an academic medical center ICU. The ICU is very different stopping grounds than the emergency department. So when I have people asking me like, hey, you know, I want to someday I want to be where you are. What do you, what should I do to get there? One of the big things that I tell them is it's really beneficial to get academic center or tertiary care level ICU experience because the emergency department experience, what you bring in the emergency department really for the most part in many systems, that's something that the paramedic is also intimately familiar with. And unfortunately, the way that our EMS education in the United States is right now, there is, there are very few programs and they're not required to train paramedics in critical care and critical care transport. A lot of that is kind of on the job training. So when you look at the paramedics coming into this, the vast majority of them, and and, and really the requirement is three to five years of ALS 911 experience. And ALS 911 is not ventilator management. ALS 911 is not five IV infusions, three of which you're actively titrating. You know, ALS 911 is not, um, you know, Impellas and ECMO and all those, you know, advanced mechanical life support devices for for the cardiovascular system. So paramedics, not because they're dumb or anything, it's just that they haven't had that exposure and there is no formal way to get that exposure in EMS. So paramedics don't have that. So really that's where many of them kind of look to the nurse and say, hey, give me some pointers on this. And and certainly over the the period of time, if you look at most good transport systems, at the end of the day, what they say is really the nurse and the paramedics should have the identical skill set. 
nurses are also then expected to kind of learn the stuff that they're not aware of, you know, the ambulance operations and um, working a lot of the, you know, the EMS equipment that, you know, are on the aircraft, the portable suction unit and the, you know, defibrillator that they have and the stretcher and, and those types of things that the paramedic can easily at the beginning of, you know, a brand new hire can run circles around a registered nurse. So, you know, it's not that there's one is better than the other. I think in the best programs, the two of them have the identical scope of practice and the identical eventual goal. But walking into that and trying to complement an existing system, I think it's very helpful for the nurse to have that high level ICU experience where when you get that patient who's on, you know, crazy vent settings or multiple infusions or advanced uh, support devices or all of the above. Um, the nurse has some background in kind of running that if the paramedic is not as comfortable with it. And then the most important part of this, so that's kind of the experiential part of it. The most important part of it, though, for any successful transport clinician is then to work as a team member because you are part of a crew of two. You really, by and large, don't have a lot of backup where you can, in the, you know, in the hospital, in the ICU, if things get out of hand, you just call the physician, you call the nurse practitioner, the PA to come to the bedside and kind of rescue you. Sure, maybe if you happen to be in a place where cell service is working, you can call medical control and talk things over, but they can't just step in and take over and run the show. Um, they can't just look at the patient and see what's going on. It really relies on you to have that degree of autonomy to figure this out by yourself and teamwork to figure it out in collaboration with that partner that you have. And what will not work is having the mindset of, well, I'm a nurse, so I'm better than the paramedic or, you know, well, I'm a paramedic, so I'm better than the nurse because, of, you know, for these reasons, uh, it, it really involves looking at you're not better or worse. You have different backgrounds. You have different assets that you contribute to this team. And we are working together on team patient to come together and pool our strengths to kind of mitigate our weaknesses to take care of this patient in their time of need. And I think that that's the important mindset that every nurse, every paramedic, every advanced practice provider, physician, respiratory therapist, whatever your discipline is, that's the mindset that you need to have when you come into a transport team is I have my strengths. I have my weaknesses. I know me as a person, I have my strengths and I have my weaknesses. Um, and I know some days that when I'm work, when I look at my my, my schedule and, and who I'm working with. I'm like, oh, I'm working with that person. Like if we get this type of call, like, I don't know what the heck I'm doing still, but I know that they've got my back. They can totally help me with this. Um, and and that, I think that's an awesome thing is that you have that diversity, even within a, an individual team or within an individual program, you have that diversity and you can lean on each other and learn from each other. And that's super important as well. Be able to be, be willing to be part of that team and to teach and to learn from your colleagues as well. I really liked not only what you talked about with the experience, because I think that's really helpful and, and that gives people something tangible to kind of follow along, but then just talking about teamwork and communication and humility and just having the character where it's, you know, what you're good at, you know, what you're not so good at, and you're willing to, to, to kind of just walk in there and say like, help, help me, you know, help me to be better. I want to be better. Here's what I bring to the table. And and just again, that that character and the humility aspect that 
I really think makes people successful, not just in flight nursing, but I think in nursing and healthcare in general, just kind of keeping that at the center of who you are, you know, lead, it lends to success. Um, it certainly isn't a roadblock. Um, and so I can tell that you are very passionate about nursing education, teaching, advancing nursing practice, just kind of pushing that envelope and taking what is, you know, research-based and, and, and the new up and coming and kind of helping to translate that into nursing practice. But like what motivates you to pass along that knowledge, that experience, and just basically like blaze trails in the profession of nursing? So I think that really comes down to, I mean, that's a, a perfect dovetail off of what we we're just talking about is, you know, at the end of the day, and I, I've seen a couple of people that have like the, the morale patches or the morale stickers of this, and, it, it, you know, it, it, the sticker that says, no one is coming, it's up to us. And, and I think that's the, the exact importance of this. You know, when you look at transport clinicians, we are really practicing to the absolute highest level of our licensure or certification. And we need to have the support to do that. Um, at the end of the day, you know, um, I was on another podcast talking about the position statement that I helped co-author with, you know, for uh, advanced practice nurses working in the EMS system. And, you know, the perception of that, you know, when a lot of folks read that was like, well, you know, all these NPs are trying to take over for paramedics and push us out of here. And it's like, that's not what we're trying to do. What we're trying to do is is define that level of practice that we need out there in the field. And right now, there is no standard practice for a paramedic to go out in the field and to be able to, you know, prescribe medications. Or in, in most states, there's no ability for a paramedic to be able to perform like minor care things like suturing. Um, there's no ability for a paramedic to, like I said, prescribe like an antibiotic for a, a minor illness. So a lot of this is not trying to push people out of the way. It's kind of trying to find a way to practice at the highest level in the system that you're practicing in. So taking that and looking that, at that broadly across all of transport nursing and, and transport medicine in general, um, I think that there's you know, there's a need for us to advocate for our profession to say, no, this is something that is in our wheelhouse, um, even for registered nurses, even for paramedics, like this is something that we should be able to do. And maybe it's not something that we can do right now. And that's why it's important to be active in those professional organizations to say, hey, no, maybe we can't do it, but but we should be able to get there. Um, I'm trying to convince right now my state board of EMS to allow paramedics to use ultrasound in the field because it's currently it's not in the scope of practice for a paramedic to use ultrasound for anything. And, you know, whether that comes out, the paramedics can use it just for procedures like vascular access or whether it comes down to being a diagnostic procedure like a fast exam or a rush exam or any of those ultrasound like those those diagnostic protocols. Um, you know, that's still to be determined, but I know that there are places looking broadly at, you know, the evidence in the overall community, looking at ultrasound and looking at its applications in the critical care transport setting, and even in the 911 EMS setting, there are definite applications for that specific device in EMS practice, whether that's EMS paramedics, EMS nurses, whatever. But right now it's not in our scope of practice. So we need someone to advocate to say, hey, this is something that we can do. And as an advanced practice provider who is eligible to be credentialed in ultrasound, 
you know, I can speak to that and I can say, you know, this is something that as a nurse practitioner, I'm, I'm able to do. This is, you know, this is a training pathway we go through. It's not as simple as like, oh, hey, here's a new device, you know, watch this, you know, five minute YouTube video on it and um, have fun, go figure it out. You know, there has to be a credentialing process involved. There has to be medical director oversight and that sort of stuff. But it's something that someone has to advocate for in the first place and say, but we need to be able to do this. And this is why, and this is the impact this will have on our patient outcomes and be able to speak to that, to the people that are making those decisions. Is that, you know, is it a legislative change? Is it something that the board of nursing or the board of medicine or the board of EMS in your state is able to do? Is that something that requires the backing of a professional organization? You know, if a professional organization is going to back it, who is that professional organization? You know, get involved in that, be part of the board of directors that can bring this up and say, Hey, this is something we should advocate and, and say that this is something we should have access to. Um, so all of those different things, I think, are reasons why any individual should get involved in their local organization. And that's kind of how I started. I'm just like, yeah, this is something that would be kind of cool. And then learning that, oh, I can talk to my medical director about that. That's kind of cool. Um, I, you know, I obviously had the unique experience as a paramedic where I was also working as a nurse and I was also working in the ER where we got our medical direction from uh, my first area of practice was um, in a health system where we had a central medical direction for all the 911. So even if you were going to hospital A, your medical direction always came out of hospital B. You didn't call the destination, you called your, your base station basically. Um, but I was, I was working as an ER nurse in that base station hospital. So I knew a lot of these medical directors and I realized like, oh, I can just talk to them about stuff and tell them what challenges I'm seeing and say, hey, we should do this. And they would look at me and be like, huh, yeah, maybe we should do that. And then that kind of turned into you know, like looking at local professional organizations. You know, I, I was also fortunate in that I grew up in Western New York, where there was a very active Western New York ENA chapter, a very active Western New York American Association of Critical Care Nurses chapter. So I got involved in those professional organizations on the local level. And then they kind of you know, pushed me to get involved in more regional and more national levels. And that's kind of how my professional organization involvement got spurred and got and, and grew. But at the end of the day, it comes down to someone needs to advocate for us as clinicians, whatever your discipline is, to practice to that highest level of your training and to have the resources to do that and the education to do that. And then that, that defined scope of practice and the tools to do that so that we, at the end of the day, can come together and take care of the patients in the absolute best way practic practicable um, with what we have available to us. You have talked about a lot of uh, your involvement. You've talked about, you know, the different membership organizations, your different certifications that you're schooling. And you've clearly been very motivated and passionate about what you do. And we like to ask everybody on the podcast, is there somebody that really like lit the fire for you? Is, is there a person that really motivated you to get where you are or, or a couple people? Or was there maybe even like a patient encounter that really changed the course of your nursing practice? Um, anything in particular that stands out across your career? So I think it really takes a village. And, you know, I am one of those people who I try to learn from the positives and the negatives. So uh, the one thing that I didn't mention in my background is that um, when I was a still in so I was still in high school, I was a so New York State allowed for you to become a certified first responder, which I guess now is kind of like the EMR at the age of 16. So I did that in um, 
you know, in high school and I was a junior firefighter with the local fire department where, you know, you kind of can, can, can go to some of the calls, but you can't really do anything. Um, you're kind of like learning, learning the ropes. The other thing that was allowed in New York state um, and probably many states is you could enroll in an EMT program and you could enroll in the EMT program as long as you were going to be 18 by the time the program finished and you tested. So I looked at doing this when I was still in high school, still in the junior firefighter program. I wasn't on the fire department broadly. I wasn't, um, I hadn't graduated high school or any of that stuff. Um, and I asked somebody at the fire department, you know, is this something that I could do? And they said, yeah, go ahead and do it. So I enrolled in the, the EMT program. And uh, part of that was in order to get free tuition in the state, you had to have a chief officer from the department certify that you are a member of a volunteer department. And then the state paid for the tuition for the class instead of the individual. And when it came time for that, you know, I went back to the fire department and said, hey, would you sign this? And they said, no, we never told you you could go to that. I'm like, oh, well, this is, you know, now I'm in a conundrum. I'm like, do I continue to do the EMT program that I really am kind of interested in? Or do I, like, how do I do this? So that was, that was a challenge. But what I did is I went to the volunteer ambulance service in the next town over. And I said, hey, like, this is the position that I'm in. The fire department doesn't want to sign off on this. Um, you know, if I promise to join you guys as a volunteer member when I turn 18 and I get my EMT certification, would you be willing to to sign this this form? And the so so the first kind of the first person that really helped my career was a gentleman by the name of Mike Perry, who was the director of operations for the ambulance service. And he basically took a chance on me and said, I don't know who the heck you are. He, of course, to be fair, he vetted me with some other folks that knew me from the fire service. Um, but he himself didn't know me and he signed off on that form that allowed me to go to EMT school. So there was that. Janice Catalano was another incredible mentor to me in the ambulance service. Um, as I was working my way up through the ranks in the ambulance service, um, she was really right there by my side. Um, she was an advanced EMT. I was an EMT. She was kind of my preceptor when I first started at that volunteer ambulance service. And she really helped me get to get through a lot of the positions that I was in. Um, and she was a great personal friend in addition to a professional mentor. Like we would go over and, you know, have cocktails on the patio when I was of drinking age and, you know, just all those different types of things. And, and she was incredibly instrumental in getting me up to the point of, you know, going to paramedic school, getting through paramedic school. Um, at one point she was the, she took over as director of operations. I was like her right-hand man, the, the assistant director of operations, um, and we did a lot of really good um, transformation in that agency. Um, so that was wonderful. And then my flight career, um, I definitely have to give a shout out to Debbie Weaver. She was a chief flight nurse down at Starflight Medevac in Jamestown, New York, where I first started flying. Again, kind of a very similar deal where, you know, I would periodically see her um, when she would fly into the trauma center where I was working as a nurse and we would just kind of, you know, touch base and chat and whatever. That flight program didn't regularly get up to Buffalo. They predominantly went more over to Erie PA or um, other um, facilities down that direction. But I'd occasionally see them and I would, you know, just talk to Debbie when she would fly in and, you know, we kept in contact. And when I was looking to branch out and start doing flight, um, I looked at my options and that was one of them. And, you know, during my interview, the question was, you know, you're from, from Buffalo, you're not from down here. Why should we hire you? Are you going to stay here? And, and I really had to sell that, you know, this is something I'm interested in and I'm dedicated to, to doing this. But I think she and that interview committee really took, again, took a chance on me and said, okay, well, we'll, we'll give you the opportunity. We'll, we'll try. 
And she really helped mentor me through that transition from being a bedside nurse and a 911 paramedic into the, the flight world and really helped to push me to, you know, learn what I was doing, be really good at it, continue learning like that lifelong learning. I mean, some of that was on me, but a lot of that was on, you know, all of these outside folks kind of pushing me to get better and to better myself. So that was incredibly helpful. And then there's, there's, I mean, there's, there's so many people beyond that. I mean, my current medical and, and, and boss and friend, you know, Dr. Bill Hinckley, who is a huge name in critical care transport. Um, you know, he is an excellent guy. We are, you know, I, I bounce ideas off him all the time. He bounces ideas off me all the time. Um, it's a great collaborative relationship that we have. And I'm incredibly, you know, humbled to be able to have worked with all of these people along the way. And, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful for all of them. And I know that there's people that I haven't mentioned that I, you know, I probably should, but I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, something my dad taught me very early on in my, in, in my life is that life is not so much about what, you know, a lot of it is about who, you know, and part of that is networking. And part of that is just making sure you're surrounding yourself with the right people and, and finding those mentors and connecting with those individuals. And, you know, just like my story with Starflight, I mean, had I not just started talking to this flight crew at, at some random point and saying, hey, I want to fly someday, you know, I probably would have never met Debbie and probably would never would have had that relationship and probably never would have even gotten started in critical care transport when I did or where I did or how I did or with the organization that I did that pushed me to be who I am today. So I think a lot of it just comes down to, you know, you need to, you, you really, it does, it does take a village um, but you really need to be grateful for those folks that are, you know, come into your life and um, help you along the way and mentor you through that. And I think that it's, it's very helpful to have those individuals. Um, and I'm, I'm definitely grateful for, for everyone that I've met along my career. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. I, I appreciate it. And it's, it's always good to hear the, the different things that form us and, and push us to the point that we are today. So I appreciate you sharing that. I'm going to turn it over to Holly. All right, Jacob. So I am going to jump into our rapid fire question. So if you were not doing what you were doing now, then what else would you like to do? So it could be like anything. You know, I, I love traveling. So I don't, I mean, a part of me would, would kind of like to do like airline pilot type stuff where you can go to all kinds of different destinations. I mean, don't get me wrong. I would love to be just like independently wealthy and be able to travel for fun all the time. That's what I would love to be doing. <laughs> um, but as far as like a, a realistic thing, I would, I kind of like to do, do something that would allow me to travel a lot. Um, I really like what I'm doing. The other thing is if I could, you know, make a lot more money doing it, I would love to just be a guy on the ambulance again. I mean, I really, really enjoyed my time when I was doing that. And I would love to just give it all up and work my, you know, four 12 hour shifts a week. And I, I really enjoyed that. I thrive there, but any one of those things, but I definitely, I love traveling. Well, we have some more favorites coming up. So do you have a favorite book? Again, it can be something best of all times, or just something you're currently reading that you'd recommend to us. I think my favorite book or books, I guess, would be The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. That's the probably one of the best. Um, it's, it's a trilogy of books. So there's five books in the trilogy. Um, but it, I, I love that book. Um, and I, I had to make sure before, because I knew that they were coming out with the movie, and I had to make sure that I read all of the books before I could watch the movie. That was my rule. And, and I really loved it. And there's a lot more detail. Uh, I'm sure any 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 book that turns into a movie, this is always the case where there's just so much more detail and so much more cool stuff in the books that they just can't transform into the, you know, the 
the final theatrical production of whatever it is. So that's probably my favorite book. Um, from a medical standpoint, I do recommend for, for, for all emergency nurses specifically, The House of God by Samuel Shem. Um, that is a probably a must read for many emergency uh, nurses and physicians and advanced practice providers. I think so. Mm. That was, that's probably my other favorite book. It's, and, 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 and it's, it, it's not religious and it's not necessarily specifically medical, but it's, um, it's, it's just a really good book. Mm-hmm. It's a great book recommendation. Okay. Moving on to another favorite. Um, do you have a movie recommendation for us or a favorite of yours? I think my, and this probably tells you about the, um, the, the jaded personality that I developed. Um, maybe it's Stockholm syndrome. I don't know. Um, when I was a commercial EMS provider, but my favorite movie has to be bringing out the dead. Um, that's, that's, that's hands down, probably my best movie that I, I enjoy watching even to this day. Who was the main actor in that? Was uh, that was a Nicolas Cage movie. Oh yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. Um, I, I knew that only because I have this thing with Nicolas Cage. I got to watch all his movies. And, um, you know, that one was, I would like to say it's kind of like a cult classic. Like not many people had seen it. And I think his, you know, I'm not saying he wasn't as big of a star. That's probably like the heyday, but it was one of those. It was just kind of like a little bit off the beaten path, but it really did bring out some very like dark undertones that when you're in it, it totally makes sense. (laughs) So such a good, such a good recommendation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay. Favorite musical artist. I am a Pink Floyd fan. That's my number one go-to. Man, they've got some like really emotionally just hard pack rhythm there. Like you've, it, it pulls out feelings in their music. Um, yes. I mean, I, I can see how, you know, it may not be for every single person, but when you get it, I think you get it once again, it's probably why you liked that Nicolas Cage film. Um, <laughs> I'm getting a feel for your music. I'm getting a feel for your, uh, I, I like it. So thank you for sharing that. Okay. This is, this could make or break our friendship here, but what is your comfort food or a meal that you really enjoy? My comfort food has got to be pizza. That's just hands down. That's just like what I go to for any reason that that's yeah. In fact, my, so my wife and I actually kind of met over pizza. That was kind of our thing. Um, we, we had known each other, but there was this one point where I was actually coming back. So this was when I was living in my wife and I met in Cleveland and uh, I was coming back to Cleveland from being in New York. Um, I was actually visiting the ambulance service that, you know, that I grew up with. And I forget what we did. We must have been doing like, you know, cleaning the, the station or, or washing the ambulances to get it ready for, for, I forget exactly why. We had ordered a bunch of pizzas and fewer people turned out than we thought. So there was a bunch of pizza left over. So I was driving back to Cleveland with the pizza that I, you know, and by by the way, Western New York pizza is better than any pizza anywhere else in the world. I've yet to find any pizza that is better than Western New York pizza, even mm-hmm. New York City pizza, even Chicago pizza. I know I'm going to get hate mail from this. So I'm sorry to be sent for all of the, um, the hate notifications that are going to sue from this, but Western New York pizza is the best. So I'm bringing that back to Cleveland. And um, my now wife uh, messaged me. She needed me to help her kind of proofread a, a strongly worded letter to a parking attendant named Paul. And basically, we she's like, if you come over, she's like, I've got cheesecake. I'm like, well, that's cool. I've got pizza. She's like, deal, cheesecake for pizza, and we'll work on this letter together. So I met up with her. We, you know, I shared my pizza. She shared her cheesecake, and um, so now we actually have every year um, on that date we have what we call our pizza anniversary, and we go out for pizza every single year on that date. So 
Mm. That's that's my pizza story, but that is also um, very much my comfort food. I honestly, we can be we can be long term friends now. One <laughs> because pizza, <laughs> who doesn't like pizza? Two, the fact that you have a strong opinion about pizza and not just like oh, any pizza will do. No, no, sir. <laughs> you have to. There has to be some definitions as to why you love it and defining that love is it brings us, it brings people together or it tears people apart. I mean, really when it comes to pizza, there's strong opinions, but I, I appreciate that. And I also appreciate your story. That's, that's, it's amazing how food is something that bonds people. And then, yes, I think it's so great to have a pizza anniversary. Hmm. I have to think about that. So <laughs> any other hobby? I know now I'm like, mm, I want pizza. Um, so any other hobbies or do you have like a self-care go-to? So I really enjoy going and um, I think I kind of alluded to this before, but just traveling, getting out into nature. I mean, my kind of go-to is if I get some free time, I, I'll i try to go out and hike. Um, I, I'm really trying to get to as many places as I can. Uh, my bucket list item is to do like every single national park. I know there's a lot of people that do that and I'm woefully not where I probably need to be in order to actually achieve that someday. Uh, but especially since like, I don't know, 90 of them are in Alaska. That's going to be fun. Uh, but that that's kind of where I want to get to. Um, but you know, if I'm having you know a bad day or if I just need to recharge, I mean, I love just finding a hiking trail, going out for, uh, and this is another thing my wife makes fun of me all the time. Um, I actually have a shirt that says, oh, it's only another half mile or so. Um, and I tell her it's not the half mile you have to worry about, it's the or so. Um, Cause I'm like, oh, I'm just going to go out for a quick, like two mile hike. And then, you know, four hours and 12 miles later, I'm like, yeah, I guess I should probably go home. <laughs> so um, that that's, that's really my go-to. And whenever I travel, like if I'm going to a conference, I really love if I can find a way to get out into nature, um, you know, whenever where, you know, wherever the, the, the trails take me, um, that's what I really enjoy doing locally. That or the other option is a good craft brewery. Um, that's, that's the other thing that I like to do whenever I travel. The recharge is definitely the nature. And then the other thing that I enjoy doing when I travel is trying to find a good local craft brewery, going and having a couple of drinks. Sounds like you know how to reset. And that's important. I think, especially with all of the things that you're doing and all the ways that you're giving out, it's definitely important to know what can I do to like recharge, reground myself. And really it just helps you jump back in and be able to re-engage at a super high level. So that's awesome. If our audience would like to follow you online, what social media platforms are you on? So uh, I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, all those fun places. I have a website where I don't really have a lot of info on my website. It's mostly if you come to one of my conference presentations, that's where I upload um, the slide handouts for folks to go to. But in pretty much every single one of those, uh, my handle is Jacob Miller, A-C-N-P. Uh, that's, you know, I'm a acute care nurse practitioner. So that's my handle, Jacob Miller, ACNP. You can find me um, on Facebook at that. You can find me on Twitter. You can find me on uh, LinkedIn at any of those and feel free to connect with me. And that's also my website. It's jacobmilleracnp.com. It's also my email, jacobmilleracnp at gmail.com. If anyone has any burning questions, they really want to reach out to me. They can, by, by all means, go ahead and shoot me an email um, or you can get my email through my website or whatever. Well, I appreciate you sharing that, Jacob, because now we don't have to worry about funneling out all the hate mail for the pizza um, preferences because <laughs> everybody knows exactly how to find you and let you know themselves. But in all seriousness, it's been really good talking with you today. It's been really nice to to catch up some more after we last talked and to be able to know so much more about you. And 
you know, on behalf of each person listening and the nurses out there, I just want to thank you for all the work that you're doing to advance the profession of nursing and all that you're doing and not only flight transport, emergency transport, but um, what you're doing as a professional in, in the field of nursing. So thank you very much for that. Absolutely. I was going to say, just thank you guys so much for inviting me to have this chat with you and uh, to get my message out there to the greater masses. Well, we appreciate you being with us. And I want to take this time to thank you, Jacob, for joining us for this episode of BCN and Friends. Thank you for sharing your knowledge, your time, and your passion with us. And we are looking forward to spending some face-to-face time with Jacob in Charlotte, North Carolina for BCN Learn Live on November 13th through the 15th of 2023. Check out the registration information at bcn.org backslash learn live to see the lineup of speakers and the topics. Get registered and come and meet us in Charlotte. And to all of our listeners, we hope you will stay tuned as we continue with BCN and Friends and bring you new, meaningful content and perspectives. If you have a suggestion for an episode, please email us at bcn at bcn.org. I'm Holly Briggs, here with Michael Dexter, and on behalf of the entire BCN team, we thank and celebrate you for all that you're doing as professional nurses across the emergency spectrum. Until next time, we are out.